We are finishing up today our sermon series on Tim Keller's book, Making Sense of God. Today's the last sermon of that eight-week series. And you know whether or not we've hit it or not, we've tried to challenge some of the intellectual inadequacies of the secularist, naturalistic worldview at explaining some of the things that are some of the most self-evident realities of the human condition, not just origins of the universe or origins of life, but some of the other issues that relate to just our soulishness and what it means to have identity as a human being and the reality of love and the reality of justice and right and wrong and you know what does it mean how does it, how do you handle suffering we still think that god is by far the most rational explanation for what is self-evident to all of us and that the intellectual inadequacies of the secularist naturalist worldview still haven't been answered they're still coming up short but you know to be honest with you even if you bought into our sermons these last eight weeks, chances are it ha- that kind of sometimes philosophical thoughts about whether or not God exists and all these other issues aren't necessarily going to cause you to be committed. They're interesting, and they might change your beliefs on a scale, some sort of spectrum, but they won't necessarily bring a greater commitment. To me, it all comes down to what are you going to do with Jesus? Because when you understand Jesus, all of a sudden we're starting to talk about a real person who called for 100% commitment. And all the commitments in your life are going to flow from that one commitment, and it really does get into a whole different challenge in our beliefs for all of us. So here's the question. How do you know what to believe about Jesus? And some people, smart people, leaders in their field have challenged even the existence of whether, whether or not the historical Jesus even existed. The past 10 years especially, somebody smart like Richard Dawkins, smart biologist, has been, he started off about 10 years ago challenging even the existence of Jesus. He has a website, the Richard Dawkins Foundation for Reason and Science, and there was an article in 2014 that was titled this, Did Historical Jesus Really Exist? The evidence just doesn't add up. And that article was tweeted a lot by Richard Dawkins, and it ended up being sort of one of these things that gave a lot of confidence to a lot of people to start putting on social media their proclamation basically of the same question. I saw people I follow that used to be a part of Christianity that left the faith retweeting a lot of things that were challenging even the existence of Jesus, saying, you know, it's not even, there's not even really any evidence that a real Jesus ever existed. Well, maybe you've seen those same things on social media, and maybe that caused you to to wonder. Now, here's what happened. It's interesting because five years later, Richard Dawkins wrote a book, and he changed his tune. And my guess is some scholar that he respects kind of said kindly and politely, yeah, you know what, you're a great biologist, but when it comes to history, you don't know what you're talking about. Because in that book, Richard Dawkins said, okay, yeah, I think this probably likely that Jesus existed. And to his credit, He even quoted uh, a non-Christian source of antiquity, a guy named Tacitus, who was a Roman senator and a Roman historian that lived, he wrote in about 116 AD, and he was talking about the history of uh, Christianity, and he says this, he says this, Tacitus says, Christus, you know, Christ, suffered extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius, that was the emperor then when Jesus lived, at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. 
So here, Richard Dawkins, again, to his credit, was intellectually honest enough to put that in his book. Okay, yeah, there is good non-Christian, non-religious confirmation that Jesus lived, he, he died, uh, the extreme penalty being crucifixion, uh, when, ten, when Tiberius was emperor of, of, of Rome and, and Pontius Pilate was procurator of Judea. Uh, and so he gives a time and he gives a, he gives a story and so it's, you know, that's okay. So maybe that's challenging the narrative. But, you know, a guy named Bart Ehrman, uh, he's a atheistic New Testament scholar. I said that to somebody the other day, and they said, wait, a New Testament scholar who's an atheist? And I said, yeah, you know, most, <laughs> most New Testament scholars at secular universities are atheists. He goes, really? I said, yeah, that's part of the reason why they went into it. It was to disprove Christianity. And that's true of Bart Ehrman. He's really into disproving Christianity. Most of his writings have been attacking Christians and attacking Christian beliefs. And so he's sort of been a nemesis in my side for a number of years as a pastor. But he, when, when people started saying there's no historical evidence for the existence of Jesus, even he called time out and said, okay, that's ridiculous. And he wrote a book called Did, Did Jesus Exist? And in that book, he says this. Again, he's an atheist. He says it. I'm an agnostic with atheist leanings. The reality is that whatever else you may think about Jesus, he certainly did exist. As virtually every scholar of antiquity, of every scholar of biblical studies, every scholar of classics, and of Christian origins in this country and, in fact, in the Western world agrees. Every single scholar agrees Jesus existed. Those vocal persons who deny it do so not because they have considered the evidence, but because they have some other agenda that this denial serves. Okay, so that's pretty strong. That's somebody who really knows his, his historical documents. And he's saying, nobody at any accredited university, no scholar of antiquity, no scholar of Bible studies or Christian order is gonna say Jesus never, of course he, he for sure, we have enough evidence, overwhelming evidence, he for sure existed. Those who say he didn't, they completely are willfully ignoring the evidence for their agenda. Okay, so we have this sense that Jesus existed. But how do we, that's not enough to be committed to him, right? How do we know that the Jesus we read about in the Bible, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, is an accurate historical reality of Jesus? That's an, a description of the real Jesus. And, you know, there's a lot of things I could have quoted, a lot of really impressive quotes. I decided to go with somebody who's, uh, they're probably the most, at least uh, some of the most well-respected historians, regarded historians of the 20th century, self-professed atheists, Will and Ariel Durant. And they wrote a, a multi-volume book, the, the Story of Civilization. And in volume three of that multi-volume work that they did, The Story of Civilization, again, they're self-professed atheists. But they cover Christianity, and you can't hardly cover the story of civilization without covering Christianity. And, and they have a little run there that I thought was interesting when it comes to, can we trust the Bible? Can we trust the New Testament as being historically accurate about Jesus? Even these self-professed atheist historians say this. They say, in essentials, the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, agree remarkably well and form a consistent portrait of Christ. They record many, and I catch this, incidents that mere inventors would have concealed. So here's, what, here's what's going on. When a historian wants to look at documents of antiquity, one of the questions they ask is, is this a reliable document or is this making up fable and myth? And one of the ways they determine whether this is historically accurate or fable and myth is, well, is it self-deprecating? Are they saying things that are contrary data to their agenda? 
And so they're saying, look, we know that the Jesus of the Gospels couldn't have been made up because there's so much data contrary to their agenda that's in it. And they give a, a couple examples. They say, they say the competitive the competition of the apostles for high places in the kingdom. So they're saying, look, if the apostles who wrote it, if they're trying to pawn off a new made-up religion, would they make themselves look so childish and ridiculous as to fighting over which of them is the greatest in many places in the Gospels? They say that's a good sign. We're reading real history rather than somebody's mythical agenda. Their flight after Jesus' arrest is another one. That's not really, that doesn't come across them looking that great. Peter's denial. Well, if you're going to be the leader of the church, try a good safety tip. Don't deny Jesus right before he gets crucified. They have that in there. The failure of Christ to work miracles in Galilee. The references of some auditors to his possible insanity. His confessions of ignorance as to the future. His despairing cry on the cross. They say, no one reading these scenes can doubt the reality of the figure behind them. That a few simple men should in one generation have invented so powerful and appealing a personality, so lofty an ethic, and so inspiring a vision of human brotherhood. In other words, remember we said Christianity was the first to say all people are equal and have equal rights. That's a brand new thing. Would be a miracle far more incredible than any recorded in the Gospels. The life, character, and teaching of Christ constitute the most fascinating feature in the, go ahead and get that, we'll wait. <laughs> constitute the most fascinating feature in the history of Western man, of Western civilization. Now, I, the, the life, character, and Jesus, they say, self-professed atheists, but they can't cover the story of civilization without at least saying it's the most fascinating feature in all of history of Western civilization is Jesus. The life, character, and teaching of Jesus. I don't believe it. I don't buy it. I don't think it's true. I think if all we had was the life and the character and teachings of Jesus, we wouldn't be here talking about Jesus right now. I don't buy it at all. Because see, that's not what got him crucified. What got Jesus crucified was the self-centered magnitude of his claims about himself. I mean, his, his, the self-centered magnitude of his own claims. I mean, Jesus claimed that he could forgive all sins. Now, you know, sins, you can only forgive sins that are against you. And so Jesus is saying all sins are ultimately against him and he could forgive them. That's, that's saying he's God. Jesus claimed that he gives eternal life to all who believe in him. Jesus claimed that he was going to return one day, catch this, and judge every single person who has ever lived in the world. Jesus claimed that he was the Old Testament name for God, the I am who appeared to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter three. Jesus said, it's a weird passage. He said in John five, or excuse me, eight fifty-eight. he said, well, you know what? Before Abraham was born, that was 2000 years before Jesus. Before Abraham was born, I am. I am, Jesus said, at least seven times, actually 14 times in the gospel of John alone. See, Jesus made this unbelievable claim to be God so much so that he even many times in the gospels receives people's worship of him as God. 
Well, that's a lot more than just the life and the character and the teaching that caused the most fascinating person in human history. Here's here's what it is, is that Jesus is the only person, the one singular person in all of human history who claimed to be God and got a really large number of people to believe it. Lots of people claim to be God and they all kind of die out when the guy gets killed. But Jesus is the one person who claimed to be God and a numerous multitude of people believed it. Well, maybe, maybe it was because they witnessed his miracles. That, that, they didn't talk about that. Or maybe they just really did, really were so impressed by his unparalleled wisdom. And that's what convinced people he was God. But it wasn't. Not even that. Because see, here's, the, here's the thing, is that when Jesus died on the cross, and they're right, remember they talked about the, all the disciples fleed, fled when Jesus went to the cross and Peter denied Jesus? They all headed for their own, cover their own butts. They would have all died out the night Jesus was crucified. End of story, okay. End of Christianity. That wasn't what changed the world. None of what, anything Jesus did changed the world. You know what it was? It was his resurrection. See, here's the thing that's really super interesting is that the resurrection is the one thing that we, when you just reading the story in the New Testament, it's the one thing that turned everything around and it's the one thing that explains even the extra biblical things we have that talk about the first Christians, even, even Tacitus. I want to go back to that little long passage by Will and Ariel Durant when they were talking about the beginnings of Christianity because I I didn't include one little snippet there. And it's this right here where they're talking about the Apostle Paul. Here's what they say. They say, the Christian evidence for Christ begins... Now, here's what I want you to get, because they're right, that, that when you read the Bible, the, the Gospels are first, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and we're thinking those were the first documents. They weren't. They were later. The first documents we have about the life and teaching and death and resurrection of Jesus are the documents of the Apostle Paul. Some of those were written like 17 years after Jesus, I mean, less than the, the age of this church since Jesus' death. But here's what's really interesting. They say, they say this, that the Christian evidence for Christ begins with the letters ascribed to St. Paul, the Apostle Paul, we would say. Several antedating before, in other words, before 64 AD. Now, here's where I got to step in and say, we think all of Paul's letters were before 64 AD, but they date a few of them afterwards. But the main ones that we would call, that we cite a lot, they would all, everybody agrees they're before 64 AD, and almost, and they would say, universally accounted as substantially genuine. So here's what they say, that all of Paul's letters before 64 AD are almost universally accounted as, as genuine. So they say, no one has questioned the existence of Paul or his repeated meetings with Peter, James, and John. And here's something really interesting, too. I don't have time to quote it, but I, can, I just have to say it, is that virtually every single scholar agrees of antiquity, Old, New Testament studies, history, that, that when when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, now again, every scholar agrees that Paul existed, and 1 Corinthians is one of those letters that everybody universally accounts for as being genuine. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. Nobody denies that. At any accredited, no, 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 no scholar at any accredited university would deny that the Apostle Paul wrote 1 Corinthians right around 20 years after the death of Jesus. And almost every single scholar agrees 
that that little run he does in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, verses three through eight, doesn't come from Paul. He's quoting a an earlier creed that Christians had. Some of them say within a year after Jesus' death, almost all scholars agree within five years after Jesus' death, what Paul says here was already circulated in the, in the, in the, in the church, in Christ, among Christians. And here's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 3. He says, for what I received, now Paul's even admitted, I, I, this isn't mine, I received this, and I passed it on to you. So when he passed it on to them was when he started the Corinthians church in about 49 or 50 A.D., Again, so if Jesus died 33-ish AD, you know, 17, 16 years after Jesus' death when Paul started that church, and even then he passed this on to them, and the this he passed on to them, most scholars think was like some of them a year, maybe five years after Jesus' death. Here's the this. As a first importance, here it is, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, and that he appeared to Cephas. That's Peter's Jewish name. And then to the 12, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. So that's, you know, that counts out hallucinations because the 500 people don't have the same hallucinations at the same time, most of whom are still living. You can even talk to them if you want, Paul says. He kind of adds that in. And then he says, then he appeared to James. That was the half-brother of Jesus that the gospels say he thought Jesus was crazy during Jesus' life. So what changed his mind was that Jesus appeared to him after the resurrection, then to all the apostles, and last of all, Paul says, he appeared to me. And that's what changed everything for Paul, because Paul was persecuting Christians until that. Here's the thing I want you to see, is that very, very early in the church, all the Christians were doing the things that they were doing, partly because of the teachings and partly because of the miracles and all that, yes, the claims of Christ, but what really changed everything was this right here. Because see, all these people that Paul mentions became radical, they went onto the world stage, suddenly just bursting onto the world stage, and suddenly they are bold and they are confident and they are proclaiming everything's changed because Jesus has risen from the dead, and they are so bold about it that it causes them to be tortured and killed by the multitudes. I want to go back to that thing from Tacitus that Richard Dawkins was quoting. What he didn't quote, and I'm not faulting him for it because it wasn't relevant to what he was talking about, what he didn't quote was the rest. This is the earliest non-Christian document we have that talks about the origins of Christianity, it talks about the death of Jesus, and it talks about the presence and the persecution of Christians in Rome as early as 64 AD. Tacitus is talking as a historian and as a Roman senator about what happened in 64 AD when, here's what happened, almost the entire city of Rome burned. You've heard of you know, Nero playing his flute while Rome is burning. That's a historical reference to this great fire, this six-day fire in Rome in 64 AD. It was devastating. And you can imagine people were not happy with Nero, the emperor of Rome. And so what Nero did is he had to find a, somebody to blame and to turn everybody's anger toward, and he chose Christians. And so there's enough Christians in Rome in 64 AD, you know, 30-something years 31 years after Jesus had lived, had spread so fast that Tacitus, no friend of Christianity, as you'll see, he writes this when he's talking about the history of 64 AD. He says, Nero, the emperor, fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations. Now, that sounds strange, right? 
these people that were hated for their abominations were called Christians by the populace. It's really interesting because the reason why they were hated for their abominations is because they didn't identify with the idols of Rome. And so they, they were called, that was abomination. That was, a, that was something that was evil. And they were hated for it. And it says they were called Christians by the populace. And he goes on, he says that Christus, from whom the name had its origin, so they were called Christians because of Christ, suffered the extreme penalty, that's crucifixion, during the reign of Tiberius, the emperor of Rome, at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, who was the governor of Palestine, and a most mischievous superstition. That's what he's calling their message about Jesus' lordship and resurrection. A most mischievous superstition broke out not only in Judea. He's a good historian because he knows his facts. He's got his facts right. This whole thing started in Jerusalem. It broke out in Jerusalem. He understands it. The first source of the evil, because again, they're not identifying with the idols of Rome, but even in Rome, he says, an immense Multitude. So by 64 AD, Tacitus is saying there is an immense multitude of Christians in Rome who believe in the mischievous superstition. An immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city. So they gave up on, okay, yeah, they didn't cause the fire. They gave up on that, okay, now. But because it started, the persecution started because of the fire, they started realizing that, they, okay, well, let's just kill him anyway because we hate him so much. So it says, not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. Now, this is opposite language, right? Because we're reading this and we're seeing him describe Christians as evil, as people who have an abomination. They're hated for their abomination. Why are they hated? Because they're called haters of mankind because of their hatred for mankind. Is anything all that different today? I mean, we are called, I'm called a hater. I'm called, a, we have a message. We preached a sermon here a few years ago. We call, it was called a message of hate. It was just a message of biblical morality, but it was called, we're called haters. It was a message of hate. I mean, every, it's, an, it's amazing how it's still the exact same after 2,000 years. Now, I'm not saying we're being persecuted. Don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that. I am saying the accusations, there's not a whole lot different under the sun in 2,000 years. It's the same thing. He says, so he says, mockery of every sort was added to their death. Now, Tacitus is in favor of this. He says, covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination. So here's what he's saying. That they might have been killed with dogs. They put you know, fur on them so that dogs would kill them. They were either nailed to crosses or they might have been burned alive. And their bodies put up as sort of torches at night to illuminate at night. And specifically illuminate what? He goes on, he says, he says, Nero offered his gardens for the spectacle. If you come to the gardens of Nero, the gardens are lit up at night by the bodies of burning Christians. And then he says, and was exhibiting a show in the circus, the Colosseum. Here's, here's the thing that's interesting. That's when Peter was crucified upside down, 64 AD. He was crucified as part of that. He was nailed to a cross, but he, he was crucified upside down. That's when Paul was beheaded, 64 AD. Now, he was a Roman citizen, so he didn't have to go through all the torturous stuff. He was just beheaded. But he says an immense multitude. Here's a question. Obviously, these people were convinced. Do you have enough evidence to be convinced that Jesus of the Bible is real, is true? 
that the, the, the whole thing's true, that he rose from the dead and that he's the one who forgives sins and he's going to judge everybody and he's the one that gives eternal life and he's the I am and he receives work. Is it, do you have enough evidence to be convinced? Because see, here's the thing. The immense multitude in Rome in 64 AD who died these incredibly torturous deaths of being devoured by dogs in the Colosseum or being nailed to crosses or being burned at the stake and lit up at night. They had 100% commitment. I mean, to give your life is 100% commitment, but they didn't have 100% proof. They didn't see the resurrection Jesus. Jesus. They just had the apostles and the witnesses, the 500 or whoever, they had their testimony about the resurrection Jesus. They had the testimony of the life of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, the wisdom of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus, and the promises of Jesus. They had 100% commitment to die for it, but they didn't have 100% proof. They just had the testimony. But the testimony was that Jesus said he was the answer to death, and so death wasn't going to be the greatest obstacle for them. The testimony was that Jesus was going to be the answer to every evil because of his death and resurrection when he returns to restore everything on the earth, and they wanted to be a part of that story. And the testimony of the apostles was eventually written in what we call the New Testament. It's what we, when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Matthew's an apostle, John's an apostle. When you read Mark, you're reading Peter's words to Mark. When you're reading Luke, it's all of them, he says. And you're reading the apostles when you read Peter, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. You're reading all the letters of Paul. You're reading 1 and 2 John. You're reading the apostles, and when you read the New Testament, you're reading their testimony. You're getting the same testimony that the immense numbers had when they committed everything but didn't have 100% proof. And it was that New Testament that was written, what we call the New Testament, all these letters that they were writing as they were dying that changed the world. That's what, that's what changed the world was the, the New Testament. And, and it's why here, what is it, 2022? 2022 years since the birth of Jesus, that's how, we, that's how we even talk about time. And we talk about space, the, the east and west based upon Palestine. Everything in our lives, we don't even know it, but the New Testament has totally orchestrated almost every reality in our world and we don't even think about it. And even now today, the Pew Research Center says that between 50,000 to 70,000 new believers become believers every single day across the globe in our, in our world. Even now, the witness of the apostles is bringing in just a little under 19 million people a year, new people a year. Now, here's my advice. If you have to choose between Jesus and truth, Choose truth every time. If you've got to decide to believe Jesus or the truth, always choose the truth. Always. I, I just think that there's no other better explanation that the, the witness of the apostle is the truth. The apostles is the truth. Because I don't have a better explanation for why they would do that. I don't have a better explanation for why they would go to spend the rest 30 years of their lives proclaiming resurrected Jesus and suffering and being tortured and torturously killed unless they were convinced that they, they saw and they were with a resurrected Jesus. And that it was all true. The whole thing was true. 
I don't have a better explanation. Do you? It all comes down to what are you going to do with Jesus? Because, see, Jesus 100% believed that all the Bible, 100% of the Bible was true. That's what he taught. And Jesus believed that the God of the Old Testament and New Testament is 100% true. So we can get into all the philosophical conversations about origins and souls and all that. That's all good. I love doing it. I actually do love doing it. But it really all comes down to if you believe in Jesus, the whole thing's true. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, everything he said is true. And that's the evidence. That's the, that's the best evidence you're ever going to find. You can have 100% commitment to Jesus and not have 100% evidence, but you've got really good evidence that makes, at least for me, at least for me, it makes that commitment the most rational commitment I can make. You know what? We don't have all these things. We don't have evidences of things, but we have signs. And that's what is, we, we sometimes think that communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, whatever you want to call it, we sometimes think that somehow, you know, churches at some point added this, you know, somehow it kind of became a churchianity thing where we have the communion and all this and it becomes a very religious thing and we do the religious rituals and somehow we think that somehow, we're not sure when it started, but that's what, that's what churches do. But that's not what the witness of the apostles say at all. What they say is that they were with Jesus the night before he was crucified. They had no idea what was going to happen. But they were eating Passover with him. And Jesus was starting to talk strange. And he was starting to talk about, you know, I'm going and where I go, you can't come and things like that. And I'll come back for you and all that kind of stuff. And then he took the bread at the meal and he said, this is my body given for you. And, and he started talking about the Passover meal as if it was about him the whole time, all the New Test, all the Old Testament, it was always about him. And 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 the bread that we break, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the bread that we break is a sharing in the body of Christ, even now, two thousand years later. So if you have your elements, now we're doing it in plastic, that's not awesome, but that's the way we do it these days. Uh, you can take the bread part, and let's say this together. We are one body and we share one bread. Take and eat. Here's the thing. This has been an unbroken chain for 2,000 years. For 2,000 years, Christians have been taking and eating. Ever since Jesus did it that night before he was crucified, when he took the wine and he said... This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Ever since then, it's an unbroken chain. We've been doing it for 2,000 years. We've been taking and drinking as members of his body and members of his kingdom. The cup that we share together unites us as brothers and sisters in Christ. In Christ. So let's say this together. We have died together. We will rise together. We will live together. Take and drink. Let's stand now and sing together about Christ.